From the University of Alberta Alumni Association, it's What the Job. I'm Matt Ray. I think being entrepreneurial is more of an attitude than it is an occupation. I think anybody can be entrepreneurial. You just have to be curious enough to, to chase something and then be willing to kind of take some risks to try it out and, and know that it might not go the way you wanted. My guest on this episode of What the Job is Faiza Ramji. Faiza is the principal for a marketing consultancy, and she's also the co-founder of a company that makes distilled field spirits. We talk about how her entrepreneurial journey started with a grade school marble business, her passion for starting and growing things, and how she became one of the first people in North America to turn peas into alcohol. What the Job is made possible with the support of our affinity partner, TD Insurance. Did you know that through the TD Insurance Mellish Monarchs program, University of Alberta alumni are entitled to preferred rates on car, home, condo, and renter's insurance? Save even more by bundling your car and home insurance. To learn more about how you can save, please visit tdinsurance.com slash ualbertaalumni. What's your name and what's your job? My name is Faiza Ramji, and uh, I have two jobs right now. I am the principal at On Purpose, which is a marketing consulting agency. Uh, and I also am the co-founder of Field Notes, where we're turning Alberta agricultural products into distilled spirits. Sounds busy. What, let's, let's start with the second one. What do you do for that? And, and tell me about this, uh, these distilled field spirits. Yeah, so basically we make booze, uh, which is really fun. And, um, you know, where that started was this idea that uh, when I worked in economic development, I learned a lot about the agriculture uh, industry and what we have growing here in our region. And we're a global supplier of many significant crops, oats, barley, wheat, corn, um, and peas. And, you know, it's really interesting of being of South Asian descent. I grew up eating lentils and peas and beans, and my parents did as well when they were kids. And they happened to immigrate to the place where the majority of those crops are grown in the world. And uh, so I found that to be a little bit of an interesting circular idea. And what I learned about um, agriculture is that although we grow a lot of the crops that we that the world depends on we don't do much with them we actually just put them in big containers and export them to other countries and then they turn them into ingredients or food products or even bag or can them like you would find in the grocery store and then we buy those back and so that kind of got me thinking about why we don't do more uh, to add value to our agriculture and of course a lot of people um, helped influence those questions in my mind and so when I left economic development in 2017, I decided to kind of start exploring that by trying to create my own food product. And fast forward a few years, and I ended up in the alcohol space. And uh, through Field Notes, my co-founder and I, my co-founder is a farmer in Southern Alberta, and he and I ended up being the first people in North America to turn peas into alcohol. So most alcohol is made from grain, like barley, rye, um, and other types of uh, even corn. And we're the first in North America to use peas and the second in the world. And so our first product is Sweet Pea Amaro, which is a herbal liqueur uh, made from distilled peas and then infused with other botanicals from around the region. 
Yeah, I'll admit I'd never heard of any sort of liquor based on peas. What does it taste like? So the the actual base liquor that's made from the peas tastes very similar to any kind of like vodka that you would try. It's very clean, but it's got kind of a floral finish to it, which is really nice. And so what we've done is we've created a liqueur out of that. And so using sage, chamomile, elderflower, dandelion, um, and Alberta beet sugar, ours tastes almost like, it tastes like a mix between a boozy herbal tea and a walk in, in the river valley. That's kind of how I describe it. Oh, that's cool. And how, how did you figure, like, how did you get to the point where you're like, you know what, booze, that's where we're going. Like, we're going to turn peas into booze. Well, it's a, it, like all my stories, they take a bit of a windy path, but I, I started by trying to make a snack food product. And so I was going to make a South Asian snack food that is maybe not as widely known in North America. And so I started working with the Center for Culinary Innovation at Nate, and they introduced me to this farmer, Lindsay Good. And when he and I started talking, we actually started exploring other options and we decided we wanted to make a dairy alternative out of peas. Um, and so we were working on a barista style product that you could then go to a coffee shop and order like an oat milk latte. You could get a pea milk latte, which is not overly delicious sounding, but it was really <laughs> delicious tasting. Um, and then COVID hit. And so we felt like without the in-person element, it was going to be really hard to scale this up. So we kind of put it on pause. And then I read an article about people turning beans into beer. And so I wondered, since I was already kind of thinking about peas, I was wondering if you could do that with alcohol. And it turns out there was a distillery in Scotland that was making gin from peas. So I knew it was possible. <clears throat> I just didn't know necessarily how to do it. We ended up starting, we ended up trying to find a distiller here that could help us um, navigate that process. And we did end up finding one and uh, they had the right attitude. They said, hey, I don't know, drop off a bag of peas and we'll see what we can do with it. And so peas actually have a very similar composition to grain. So they have a ton of starch and fiber. And uh, so they break down very similarly. And we were able to basically yeah, create a vodka out of that. What was it like when you first tasted like, you know, you went through the process, you brought them this bag of peas, they're going to turn it into something to drink. What was it like when you first finally tasted what it turned into? Uh, well, because I'm not a huge um, hard liquor drinker, like I'm not, I'm not one of those people that can taste a bunch of vodkas or gins and know the difference. And, and so when I first tried it, uh, I wasn't warned about how high proof it was. And so it kind of, you know, knocked me off, off my feet a little bit. Uh, so I was kind of surprised by that, but it was really interesting. So once you kind of get past the initial burn of the, of the alcohol, I, I tasted, it, it would tasted very clean, but then it kind of had this like, you know, like floral, I don't know how to describe the taste, but I could almost describe the smell, which was um, very fresh and very garden-like to it. And that was really interesting. But what I liked about it is it didn't have a very strong taste of its own. So we could then put whatever flavor we wanted into it. And that's where I started kind of thinking about this idea of, of a garden or an Alberta prairie feel and how would I turn that into a flavor? That's really neat. And, you know, I'm, I, I could keep going all day on this uh, sort of like what one one other thing I'm wondering about is just how people react. Like how do, when you start trying to push this out to other people, are they kind of like confused or do they go right in? What's the reaction to to a pea based liquor? Yeah, they're very confused. That's for sure. Um, so I don't generally start with the peas. I generally start with 
the fact that it's an herbal liqueur, because then people can kind of wrap their heads around what that might be. And then as kind of the differentiator or the why we're unique is this idea of saying that we're, we're Alberta in a bottle. And um, the peas are an interesting base for people. So I find when you talk to chefs or when you talk to people that are in the agricultural industry, they are way more curious, but they kind of know what to expect. Uh, and then when I go to like the regular uh, consumer, that's where people are definitely a little bit more confused. So then I try to create a little bit more comparison to something that they might already know. And that's where I think describing the different botanicals that are in it gives people a better sense of what it might taste like. And then I have to say, people have been very supportive, very curious, very excited. And so we do we do get a lot of people that are willing to give it a try. And I think like any food or drink product, we get a mixed bag of reviews. People, Some people love it. Some people, it's not their jam and that's totally fine. Just like I think any food product. Um, and then, but but I think that everyone really buys into the story and is very excited about what else we can do with the things that are grown here. And really that's the ultimate mission. So I think in, in that way, we're finding ourselves to be quite successful. Alberta in a bottle is certainly catchy. Um, yeah. And I, you have a background, I think, in marketing. I'm, I'm, I'm going to get to like, how did you get here and what sort of skills did you bring to this? But um, can, you, can we go back a little bit and, and talk about how did you end up to the point where you were like, I want to launch my own business? So I think, you know, I actually started with the point of I want to launch my own business. <laughs> and then I took the windy path to actually launching it. Um, you know, I've been I know we, we toss the word entrepreneurial around a lot um, and it can feel a bit cliche sometimes. But really, I was always the type of person since I was a little kid. When I saw an opportunity to do something myself, I would just do it. And I kind of wanted to to, you know, have these challenges for myself and I would get really excited about them. So, you know, when I was a little kid in elementary school, I started a marble business and um, many of the people listening to this podcast probably don't remember what playing marbles is like, but uh, you know, it used to be very popular when I was a kid um, in the, in the late eighties. And I used to win a ton of marbles when I was in elementary school. And so I had this excess of marbles and I was like, Hey, I wonder if I could like sell these back to kids in my class. And so I did. And uh, eventually my teacher found out what I was doing. And apparently you're not allowed to do that. So I got in a lot of trouble. Um, but, you know, kind of went on from there. Like I, I wanted to know what it would be like to start a newspaper in my uh, neighborhood. So I started a newspaper. I had one subscriber. We did one issue and that was it. I realized how hard it was to actually make a newspaper on a typewriter. Um, so I stopped doing that. And and it just kind of went on from there. And, um, you know, I, I kind of, I think, I think being entrepreneurial is more of an attitude than it is an occupation. I think anybody can be entrepreneurial. You just have to be curious enough to, to chase something and then be willing to kind of take some risks to try it out and, and know that it might not go the way you want it. So I think you can do that in a job. You can do that in a volunteer experience. Um, you can do that anywhere without necessarily owning a business. You seem also, and I'm not sure how much to defer from the two examples from your childhood, but you seem also willing to move on, right? If the idea is not working out, I mean, you know, or if it's too difficult or if it's like, <laughs> I, guess, I guess if the principal says no, but you know, it's not like you had one dream and you were wanting to follow that only. It's just about wanting to start things, wanting to do things. A hundred percent. And I've always wanted to start things and, and learn and, and have the experience of growing something. You know, this experience is really interesting for me with the alcohol because 
there is a commitment level of buying inventory, being stuck on the idea enough to see it through. But I think there's lots of ways that you can de-risk the idea. So for example, I don't own my own distillery. We uh, hire a manufacturer and we work with an existing distillery to make our product. And that means that that presents its own set of challenges, but the advantage is that I didn't have to build a distillery. I don't have to learn how to do distilling or hire a distiller. All I have to focus on is sales and marketing and getting the product from point A to point B. Um, And of course, working on the recipe, but again, I have help doing that. So I think it's really about, for me, the excitement is trying to get something to a certain point or make something come true. Um, And that's what I get excited about is that process. So you're right. I'm, I'm, able to move on. Um, And I think it's because I never had a dream of one specific business or one specific product or one specific industry. I think sometimes we get stuck in an idea that we had from when we were young or for a long time. And because we get so invested in it, our identity gets wrapped up in it and then it's hard to let it go. And sometimes the market tells you that your idea might not be right at this time. Uh, that may still happen to me with the alcohol. I mean, it's been two years and it's been uh, very encouraging, but still a struggle. And at some point it might be the wrong thing at the wrong time, or, or I might have a reason to grow it or a reason to shut it down. And I don't want to close myself off to that just because I'm married to the idea. You've developed a, a pragmatic approach, it seems. I am interested in this uh, idea of like what you take on. You, you talked about you, you don't do the distilling yourself. Is that something that you learned not to try to do everything? Because I think sometimes when people have an idea or a vision or a dream or something they want to fulfill, they're, they're, they get a bit perfectionist about it. They want to do everything themselves. They want to take it all on. They want to manage it all. How did you learn what to delegate and what to take on? I think it comes down to the fact that I'm impatient. Um, So I want things to happen quickly. So if I was going to do this quickly, uh, then I'd have a lot to learn Uh, how to distill something. I have no idea how to do that. It's a lot of chemistry. It's a lot of uh, regulatory compliance. It's a lot of trial and error. And that would slow me down. Building an actual distillery. I've built a business before, a physical one. I used to have a restaurant in downtown Edmonton. And that took forever. And it was a ton of challenges. It took up a lot of my money. Um, we, we had a lot of different risks than I have in this business. And, you know, it, it, they weren't all, uh, it wasn't all sunshine and rainbows. And so sometimes you kind of develop this appetite for how much risk you're willing to take on. And for me, the fun part is actually getting people excited about it. Um, so for me, that was where I really wanted to spend my effort, not tinkering in the lab and coming up with the product itself. So that's why I chose to delegate. And I think where my ability to, to know what I'm wanting, willing to do and being able to get other people involved is also this idea of collaboration. I don't need to be the only person around the table working on something. I think every idea gets stronger if you have other experts around the table helping you. Um, and, and so to me, if I was the one trying to make the product and sell it and market it, that's a lot of things for one person to do. And there's no way I'd be good at all of that. I, I, I think there's people who already know what they're doing. So why not just get them excited and get them involved? Yeah. Recognizing your limits and your skills, I think really important. Um, I also want to talk a bit about the consulting side job that you mentioned as well. Uh, I'm interested in what you do for that. Um, and why, why do you have two jobs? 
Well, I think everybody has two jobs these days, uh, if, at, at least two jobs. Uh, if anything, people at least have hobbies and have things that they're exploring. And I think that's the beauty of the world today is that you don't need to do one thing forever or one thing at a time. I think you, we all have a little bit of control over how we spend our time. So even before when I had a full-time job, I also had a restaurant that I was running and people were asking me to do a little bit of consulting on the side. And, and so I was uh, doing that. And, you know, one thing about being younger and now I'm now I'm a bit older. And so my energy levels are starting to, to go down just slightly. But when I was younger, time felt infinite and it felt like I, it was up to me to decide how I was going to allocate that time and what I was going to do with it and what experiences I was going to have, whether that's traveling, whether that's spending time with my friends, um, whether that's reading or, and learning something new or just just relaxing and, and watching a great movie and, and being creative and being curious. So I think we all have this um, opportunity to do what we want with our time. And the consulting really came from me breaking out of full-time employment uh, because I had enough people that were willing to bring me on to help them solve a problem in their business. And that problem, I guess we would call it marketing, but it's really this idea of, you know, in Alberta, there's so many people who are really technically good at what they do, but they have a hard time explaining what they do and why it benefits their customers. And so they grow to this point where then they're like, okay, now we want to grow to the next level or we're seeing our growth taper off. So we need to kind of go backwards and start building a value proposition and really connecting our messaging to uh, an ideal customer and then figuring out how to get in front of that customer. And I tend to do really well in that space, especially when it comes to a technical business. I'm able to, I think because I'm curious enough, I learn a ton about that industry. And then I'm able to translate the technical side of what someone does into the value that they actually provide for their end customer and then build them, you know, language and tools to help them secure more of those customers and find where those customers really are. So, you know, when I, when I think about marketing, there's the product development and the strategy and figuring out who you are and how you tell people what you do. And then there's the promotional side. So I, you know, in an oil and gas analogy, I call it upstream marketing and downstream marketing. And I don't love the downstream side as much. I don't love the promotional side. I love, you know, figuring out what is the secret sauce that the business has and, and how do they add value and, and for whom do they add value? Because it's not going to be for everyone, obviously. Um, and so I think that thread, the thread among all of the things that I do is really that curiosity and wanting to just learn um, about all these different industries that are out there and, and how the world continues to change with technology and, and new products and new services. Yeah. I was going to say that it seems like problem solving is such a, a key to what you do. I think that's curiosity, right? And it runs with, I think, a lot of the entrepreneurs that we talk to. Um, it's about identifying that sort of like problem first and it, that problem might change over time, but then coming up with that business that solves or addresses that problem. Um, which is interesting. And I wonder, like, that's something that is harder to do with just a, a day job, which is like a nine to five. But do you ever wish you had that kind of like stability? Do you ever think about or uh, going back to like, oh, I just want the, the calm every day, punch in, punch out kind of life? So, you know, I, I graduated from the University of Alberta in 2004, and I started working for myself full time in 2017. So the first 13 years of my career were spent uh, in jobs, uh, full-time employment. And 
to be honest, I consider myself extremely lucky with the jobs that I've had because they've always given me an opportunity to be entrepreneurial in my, in my approach. Um, you know, I actually started in the finance field. I wanted to be an investment banker and, uh, you know, I, I spent a year getting my, uh, designation and getting my licenses to be able to work in an investment company. And I got a job offer a year out of university from RBC Dominion Securities. And I moved to Calgary and people make fun of me about this to this day, because I moved to Calgary. I went to the, to the job day one, they were like, okay, here's, you know, here's the orientation. Here's how you're going to work. Here's your team lead, et cetera. By day three, I was like, this is not for me. I can't do this. It's so repetitive there, you know, there, there was nothing wrong with the industry, but it was just not a fit for me. It required a lot of patience. Um, a lot of, you know, it's very highly process driven, of course, cause you're dealing with people's money and you're dealing with their, their trust. And, and I understand all that, but that wasn't a mold that I could fit into. And so on day three, I walked in and I said to my boss, I said, you know what, before you guys invest any more time and, and energy into me, I, I just got to say, I don't think this is for me. And I, and I moved back home to Edmonton and my family makes fun of me because they say I moved back because I missed my mom, which <laughs> to be honest, I kind of did. But uh, I also just knew that like, I just couldn't really see myself doing that for a few, a few more years. And from there, I ended up in marketing because I ended up uh, working at a radio station in the sales department. And how I got that job was that, you know, the the GM at the time or the sales manager at the time, I came in and she kept asking me, I went for five interviews and she kept asking me to do different things for her. Like, you know, show, show her, put together a PowerPoint or, you know, she gave me all these little homework assignments because I didn't really have the skill set to be in that job. And so she, I think she was just trying to test out what skills I did have. And I think at the end of the day, she just liked the fact that I, could take these assignments and run with them and, and produce something that maybe wasn't hundred percent right the first time, but I was willing to try. And through that experience, I got to work in a series of different departments. They kind of kept moving me around to wherever uh, I was needed. And then the marketing director left the company and I applied for that job. And I came into the interview with like a PowerPoint presentation and it was a day where we got our ratings and our ratings weren't that great. So the hiring uh, the, the GM that was doing the hiring, he wasn't in the best mood. And he asked me a bunch of tough questions. And again, I think he gave me that promotion because of the way that I was able to present my ideas and present solutions, even if they weren't necessarily right. Um, and so, you know, from there, I've just been put in a series of jobs where I'm given this problem, I have to solve it. I don't necessarily know what I'm doing. But because I'm not, you know, in a life-saving situation, I feel like I can always kind of figure it out. And one of the ways to figure it out is to read a bunch of stuff and another way is to ask people. And uh, I'm never afraid to ask somebody a question or to, you know, look at what's been done in the past and see what's worked and what hasn't worked. And if something has worked, you should keep doing it. You should just add incremental changes to it to make it better. But if something isn't working, well, then there's an opportunity to maybe look at it a bit differently. Um, and so I think part of, part of my experiences that led me to where I am today is the fact that I've worked with extremely smart people. Um, and I've worked with people who are willing to give me their time. And if I ask them a question, they're willing to answer it. And I think that is really extremely important. Um, and the reason that I would never recommend that somebody go straight out of school into running their own business. Cause you just, you just don't, that that's what I miss right now. When I work by myself is I miss working with other people 
um, you know, and, and I still do work with other people. It's just different. You don't get a, you don't get that, you know, problem solving as a group in the same way that, that I'm used to. I think there's also a degree of like of courage to what you do. I mean, talking about going to Calgary and leaving a job after three days, I know your, your family makes fun of you, for, but that's very brave. Like that's hard to do. I think a lot of people will be like, well, I came all this way. You know, there's a bit of a sunk cost there, right? Where you're like, I'm already here. I, I better see this out. I think it's, um, and I think courage is something when, when I talk to entrepreneurs, because I always think starting a business is a terrifying thing. So I'm always interested in what gives them the courage to do it. And I think it usually is along the lines of what you say about curiosity is what drives people solving problems, um, that passion for selling a thing right at the end of the day. Um, but I think also like just this idea of being curious and what I think I gleaned from what you were saying is that having the people around you fulfills that curiosity because you're able to bounce off your ideas. You're able to ask your questions and you're able to, um, you're able to find out the information you want if there's good people. But do you ever find though entrepreneurial work to be more isolating because it is just you on your own or are you always surrounded by advisors or mentors or whatever? Uh, so I, I am surrounded a lot by advisors and mentors. And I think, uh, you know, because I'm not shy to ask a question, uh, particularly, like I'll just say, you know, the most fun is being the dumbest person in the room because you get to ask the best questions, right? If you're, if you're considered the smartest person in the room, you almost don't want to ask questions because you don't want to appear like you don't know something. So you can really drop your ego. So I am very lucky. I'm surrounded by tons of great mentors, uh, advisors, colleagues in the past that I've had, even my clients, you know, on the consulting side, they have a wealth of knowledge and they bring uh, perspective to a problem that I wouldn't be able to bring because I haven't been in their shoes. And so I think n no job is done alone. But at the end of the day, entrepreneurship is isolating because you have to make the take the initiative to go out and surround yourself with those people. Um, you know, when it comes to the business uh, on the spirit side of things, you know, that one's isolating because I'm in my head a lot, right? Planning things out, thinking about all the different things that I've got to do and trying to prioritize and trying to make decisions. So that can be isolating. But again, at the same time, then it's about building community. And there have been so many people along this journey that have been willing to help me. And it's up to me to take the initiative to, uh, you know, send them a note and say, hey, do you want to grab a coffee or give them a call? But I find that especially in Edmonton, nobody, it is, it is hard to find somebody who's not willing to give you their time, right? Everybody is very generous with their time, very generous with their experiences. And maybe it's because I've just been okay enough to ask for it. Uh, I find that that I've just gotten amazing conversations and amazing learnings from other people. But at the end of the day, it is still just you and you're the one responsible for, for paying the bills and writing the checks. So uh, there is an element of isolation for sure. As we talked about time earlier in this show about oh, time as a sort of like thing that you value, maybe when you were younger, but uh, you do some volunteering. How does that uh, play a part? And how do you find the time for that? Why do you find the time for that? So I think the why is, is probably uh, more important than how, because anytime you decide something is important, you find the time for it. Maybe not as much time as you'd like and, and maybe not as often as you'd like, but you know, I'm part of the uh, Ismaili Muslim community and uh one of the pillars of our community is volunteering and, and, and making your community, whatever that means to you, a, you know, better for everyone. Um, and I do think that everybody 
thinks the same about community, but they don't necessarily know how or where to find these volunteer opportunities. But if you really think about it, nobody succeeds alone. Um, so being able to contribute to something, you know, that is bigger than just you, I think is a really important way to find satisfaction, but it also um, gives you a lot of skills. Like for me, volunteering has always just been a part of everything that we do in our community and, and even in my family. And that's always been, it's seen as an opportunity, not an obligation. So when you get an opportunity to serve as part of a team, a community team, or as part of a volunteer organization, that's an opportunity for you to give back. It's an opportunity for you to meet new people and it's an opportunity to learn something. Um, and so for me, finding time to do that is the same as the time that I give to my job. Obviously, you know, at the end of the day, I have to pay my bills and I have a life to live. So I have a responsibility to prioritize some of that. But, you know, when I think about the people I've met through, for example, the VMS program, being a mentor there, you know, that's about group mentorship. So you share a lot of common experiences uh, when you're helping an entrepreneur try to solve their own problem. And so I would say that as a mentor, I've learned a ton from the other mentors around the table and from the entrepreneur. Uh, and so I think, you know, it is a very, we try to be selfless, but it's like that friends episode where, where, you know, uh, I think Phoebe tried to challenge people by saying nothing is, nothing is actually selfless. You, you are always getting something out of it. And I agree with that when it comes to volunteering. Drawing philosophy from friends. Um, I didn't expect that, but that's excellent. <laughs> so I think uh, we'll go on to the lightning round now. And these are just um, questions that we ask uh, every single guest that comes on the show and you don't have to think about them too hard. The first one we always ask is, have you ever been fired? Yes, I've been let go. Mm. I've been yep. laid off, not fired. Oh, okay. Well, that's a little, I mean, still not a lot of yeah. people have many people that only a few have been let go from a job. So anyway, when you were a kid, what did you want to do? Did you always want to be in finance? Was that the goal from the start? No, I wanted to be a journalist. Oh, really? Is it? Oh, yeah, because you had that uh, that local paper. And then what, typewriters were too much? <laughs> too much. Too much. Plus, it's really hard to make money being a journalist. It is very difficult, yes. Uh, th this one, uh, you can pick whatever aspect of your uh, either of your jobs. What is something that you think uh, you wish people understood about what you do or something that maybe people don't recognize that, that has to happen in your job? Uh, well, I think people always think that I know the answer as a marketing consultant, but we don't, we just know how to ask good questions and bring a different perspective. That's probably one thing that, uh, uh, I would say people don't know about my job. And if I could add a second, it's that marketing is an expense. Marketing is actually an investment, um, and you need it in order to actually sell anything that you make. What? is some advice you might have for someone who feels like they're in a career rut, like they're stuck in their job? You're never stuck in your job. Uh, you can find an opportunity to make your own job interesting. And if you can't make your own job interesting, then find a hobby that's interesting and use that as a way to give yourself an outlet. What do you think you would be doing if you weren't doing what you're doing right now? It's kind of tricky for you because you, you change around easily, but uh, what, what, what else would you be doing? I have no idea yeah. what else I'd be doing, to be honest. Honestly, I can't think of it either. I was like, this actually question might not work for you. You might be the first one. Uh, what's your favorite thing about your job? Learning about different industries. If you could go back in time and talk to yourself right after you graduated, what would you say to yourself? 
don't use money as a benchmark for success. That's good advice all around. Uh, and lastly, in respect to your education, your career, in respect to your education and career path, is there anything that you wish you had done? Yeah, I wish I had taken a broader base of courses when I was in university. Um, <clears throat> because I was really stuck on finance, I took a ton of finance courses. And now I would actually go back and take cultural anth anthropology, learn more about people and their, their behavior and why they make decisions. I'd probably take some more, um, you know, uh, political science or history or a little bit more in the liberal arts because I think you need to know, you need to understand people and the world if you're going to be part of it. That was fascinating. These are great answers and so snappy. It just comes to you. I'm impressed. This has been a really good conversation. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Matt. Thanks for listening to this episode of What the Job, and a special thanks to our guest, Faiza Ramji, for talking to us about her career. And as always, a reminder that the best place for alumni to connect with other alumni about jobs, mentorship, or volunteer opportunities is the online platform Switchboard. It's free, and you can try it out today at uab.ca slash sport. It's a great tool no matter where you are in your career journey. That's all for this episode. For What the Job, I'm Matt Ray. See you next time.